0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing
1: you can't
0: ask
1: on the Savage Lovecast.
2: When the Dutch do something, we should pay attention. Because the Dutch get a lot of things right, dense and walkable cities, amazing bike infrastructure, healthcare for all, not single payer, but affordable, well-regulated and universal, also a constitutional monarch, I am a fan of those, and the Dutch are always way out in front on social issues, many of them near and dear to my heart. They've defined sex work as a legal profession since 1988. They've allowed for the recreational use of pot since 1976. And they were the first country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage in 2001. So, yeah, when the Dutch do something, we should pay attention. Because odds are good, they're doing something right. And very often, doing it first. Quick aside, the Dutch legalized prostitution. They didn't decriminalize prostitution. Decriminalization is better for reasons we've discussed. And we pretty much lapped the Dutch on legal weed. What we're doing here, even in Washington state, is better and more progressive than what they're doing there in Amsterdam. But still, they got their first. Respect. All right. Like most of the rest of the health authorities around the world, at the start of this pandemic, Dutch health authorities advised people to only have sex with partners they lived with. Long-established or hurriedly established cohabitating sex partners. Single people who didn't want to shack up with someone for the duration, single people who didn't want to invite someone to be their quarantine, or didn't have someone to invite, those single people were told, well, too bad for you. Hopefully it won't be years until we have a vaccine, and in the meantime, you are your safest sex partner. Hope you laid in some batteries. Pretty much the same advice where sex is concerned that health authorities have been giving out everywhere. And while I'm no health authority, it is the advice we've been giving on this show. But last week, the Dutch issued some new guidance. They gave some new sex advice to single people. In a typically open-minded intervention, The Guardian reported, official guidance from the Dutch National Institute for Public Health and the Environment has been amended to suggest those without a permanent sexual partner come to mutually satisfactory agreements with like-minded individuals. The Dutch Institute's change of mind follows the expression of immense frustration in some quarters at the rules for single people. As Dutch journalist Linda Dewitz wrote in an op-ed, Proximity and physical contact are not a luxury, they are basic needs. If we have learned anything from the AIDS epidemic, it is that not having sex is not an option. I agree. Physical contact is a basic need. That's one of the reasons I support decriminalizing sex work. And do-its-is-right, not having sex wasn't an option for us during the AIDS epidemic. The people most at risk at the time, the first people who got sick, gay men, we were encouraged not to have sex at all, often by the same people who didn't want us to have sex before AIDS came along. If we had sex, they told us we risked our lives, lives they didn't want us to lead anyway. The difference, though, between having sex during that pandemic and this pandemic, if I may be crude, and I often am, The difference was that if I got fucked in the ass by some guy in 1988, if I took that risk while at the same time doing what I could to minimize the danger by using condoms, by having sex with guys I trusted, trusted to be safe, not trusted to be negative, I had plenty of sex with pos guys. If I took that risk, I was only putting myself at risk. I didn't put the people I came into casual contact with after I got fucked in the ass at risk because I didn't have anal sex with everybody on the subway after I left or at the pizza place where I stopped for a slice, or with my parents when I got home. The human immunodeficiency virus was different, much harder to catch than the novel coronavirus, and much harder to transmit. You can't transmit HIV to someone by exhaling on them, or by touching something someone else might touch a half an hour later. But that said, I agree with Duits, and I agree with the Dutch health authorities, We can't ask people to go without physical contact, to go without sex, forever. And if we don't give people the information they need to have sex as safely as they can, people will have sex recklessly when they can. The Dutch are showing us the way. Again, Dutch health authorities are encouraging single Dutch people, single Dutch people who want to have sex, which not all single people do. Asexuality, the new superpower. Dutch health authorities are encouraging single people to find sex buddies. Singular, actually not plural, a sex buddy. And the Dutch are being told to carefully screen their potential sex buddies to figure out how many people your potential sex buddy is in regular contact with, to disclose how many people you're in regular contact with. And the greater the number, the greater the risk. So maybe cut back those numbers and find yourself a sex buddy. But it's not as simple as doing now what gay men did then. We had a lot of sex during the AIDS epidemic. And even as we controlled for the much easier to manage risks of having sex during that pandemic, a lot of people got infected and a lot of people died. The risks of having sex during this pandemic can't be eliminated any more than the risks of having sex during the AIDS pandemic could, but the risk could be managed and mitigated then and can be managed and mitigated now. And the Dutch are once again, way out in front. Not just by talking to people about how to have sex during this pandemic, but by acknowledging the legitimacy of wanting to have sex and seeking sex, even at a time like this. All right, coming up on today's show, we have tons of your Q's, tons of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the show, Diana Adams joins us. She is a lawyer who worked with LGBTQ and polyamorous families. She's here to talk about the challenges poly folks are navigating during this dangerous time. I also want to let you know that Nancy and I are going to be doing our first ever Savage Love live stream. We may not be able to come to your city and do the show live, but you can come to us on your computer. Send in your questions to live stream at savagelovecast.com. Keep them short and sweet, please, and we may answer your question on the show. You can also submit your questions during the show right there on chat. It's a little experiment we're doing. It's going to be really fun. It's also a fundraiser for a local food bank here in Seattle, and Terry and I are going to be matching the first $2,000 in ticket sales for the event and donating that to the food bank. We would love to have you join us. It's going to be on June 4th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. You can get your tickets now at com slash events.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old bisexual living in the Midwest. I'm calling because I wanted to submit one of those quarantine sex stories you talked about. And last night was really interesting. We've been doing a lot of really interesting, uh, sex quarantine things. But last night was particularly fun because we like playing with the idea of, um, playing with strangers. But right now it's a little difficult to do that. So in order to exercise that, um, sort of fantasy, we started texting each other, um, as if we were different people. Uh, we started texting each other as if we were two people who met on Tinder. Um, he was pretending like he had a wife and I was pretending like I had a boyfriend and we were in the same room with the significant others, but texting each other and sort of cheating on each other with one another. It was really sexy. Uh, things like escalated from the text and he offered me, the girl he's texting, to come over while his wife is sleeping. So I tell him as his Girlfriend, I'm just going to go for a drive and I need to clear my head. But really, I'm sneaking out of the house and going to go fuck a guy I met on Tinder. So there was a lot of this sort of like double toying with each other. Um, I got up and I went and got dressed and I walked out of the house through the back door and came in through the front door as if I was a different person. It was really interesting and exciting. He fucked me as the girl he was cheating on. And then when I came back home, quote unquote, through the back door, he then fucked me as his significant other who he found out was cheating on him. It was like just so much mind play. I don't even know how to explain it, but we've been having sex on and off since last night, all night and this morning, thinking about how fun it was to toy with each other and feel like we were different people (laughs) it really brought us back to how we started that was just a really interesting and exciting night and i just encourage other people to try some kinky weird things to fulfill your fantasies right now
2: thank you for calling in and sharing your quarantine sex story reminds me of that cliche that the biggest sex organ is the one between our ears not everyone can role play but if you can do that kind of suspension of disbelief if you can act a little bit yeah that sounds really fun And really hot. The important takeaway here, though, is not to just ape this, not to just borrow the script. The important takeaway here with your sex partner, if you're lucky enough to be sheltering with your sex partner right now, is to get creative and have fun and play, play with each other. Thank you so much for calling. If you want to share your quarantine sex story with us, give us a call 206-302-2064. We may share yours at the top of next week's show.
3: Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. So I'm a by a girl calling from Canada, and my fiancé and I have been together for four years, engaged for two, and all things considered, we have a spectacular relationship. Uh, we're both late 20s now, and we're holding off on a wedding until probably our early 30s, because what's the rush, right? Um, we've weathered many tests of our relationship. We've traveled extensively. We successfully accomplished a very productive year of long distance. We love each other's families, have an incredible community. There are really no doubts about a future. But my question's about breaking a preset dynamic in our sex life. Um, my partner is a cis straight man who spent his early 20s working really hard in academia. Um, He obtained a doctorate in physics at the age of 25, and so for that reason he kind of put his sex life aside. Uh, he's quite quiet and really social, though, because he's got a really progressive uh, friend group, Um, but somehow he never really saw himself in a sexual way. So when we began dating, it became clear that he had never done much of anything sexually. I was really experienced, because I consider my sexuality to be a really key part of my character. It's a way to bond, and it's ultimately my favorite form of play. So when he told me he was a virgin, I quickly offered to guide him through those experiences. So fast forward four years, and sometimes that dynamic resurfaces in the bedroom. Uh, This dynamic is where I'm the teacher, I brought more to the table, but I am a sub, um, and he's content with being dominant. So there's this lingering feeling that I will always be the dominant one for being the person to open him up to his sexuality, He's been really receptive, and he's really selfless in bed. He's really focused on my pleasure, so I guess I should have no complaints. But there's this feedback loop that's compounded by the fact that he's probably just not as sexual as I am. His libido ebbs and flows, but it's typically low. And maybe it doesn't help the fact that he's had a very stressful three years trying to complete a doctorate. He generally isn't the person to make the first move unless I ask him earlier in the week. I usually plant a seed saying, I'm feeling kind of saucy. Maybe you should surprise me by making a move. But this feeds into that dynamic of I'm the move maker, the teacher, the one who brought the things to the table. In the past, we've solved this problem with non-monogamy, where I've seen other partners for sexual needs during long distance, and we've considered this again, but when we've been non-monogamous, he just doesn't take advantage. He's really happy being monogamous and sharing intimacy with one person, but he's also happy uh, letting me do my own thing. So I guess I should count myself really lucky, as he's really one in a million. Anyways, do you have any ideas on how to break this dynamic? I can't change the fact that I took his virginity and that he didn't have other experiences. And perhaps he is kind of destined to have low libido. Um, but maybe there's something we haven't thought of to help me break this feeling of me always being the dominant one no matter what.
2: It isn't just that you're the dominant one. You're the initiator. Your boyfriend has your fiancé and good idea. A long engagement is always a good idea, particularly when you're in your early 20s. I never understand what the rush is for young people who get engaged. who want to get married right away. Engagement. That's a nice time to have a fiance. Why not draw that out a little bit? You will have decades and decades and decades to be married. And the quicker you rush into a marriage, the likelier you are to regret it. So draw out that engagement. I support that lifestyle shows. Anyway, your fiance has a lower libido than you do and that's just the price of admission that you're going to have to pay to be with this guy, this guy that sounds spectacular in every way including the way that he allows you to have sex with other people if you need to have sex with other people without feeling a need to have sex with other people himself. He's monogamous and happily monogamous and content to be monogamous to you but doesn't require you to be monogamous to him. So, Yahtzee, you win. You need that sort of DS feeling, that dominant, sort of masculine presence in your sex life. And and he can bring it. You have to prompt it, but he can bring it, and that's great. But he's also made it clear that he's content for you to find that elsewhere, to supplement what he brings with some outside Dom energy from some other dude or dudes. You win. This is a non-problem, very nearly a non-problem. You just have to let go of your hang-up about the fact that he was a virgin when you met and that you played the role of teacher. It sounds like you've attached a lot of meaning and import and symbolism to that, that you were his very first sexual partner, that he was inexperienced, that you had to lead him. But look where you've led him. You've led him to a place where he can bring the dominant energy when you prompt, when you initiate, when you light that fuse and tell him you kind of need it in a couple of days and you'd like to be surprised and he brings it and he allows you to go out there and get whatever it is you need that he isn't able to provide you elsewhere. So good job, teach. All you have to learn to do now is suspend your disbelief. Yes, sometimes you have to ask. Sometimes you have to prompt. Particularly if you're interested in sex with any kind of power exchange or DS dynamic, that has to be negotiated. Even if you weren't his teacher, even if he arrived at your relationship sexually experienced, to figure out what works for you two, and even if he arrived experienced with being dominant sexually, to figure out what worked for you two in that DS space, that power exchange space, you would have to teach him what worked for you. You would have to instruct him through negotiation around what it is that you wanted to experience from him and at his hands. You may want to ask him to get a little bit improvisational now that he knows after so many years together, the general shape of your desires to give him permission to challenge him not to surprise you with when it's going to happen, but also around the margins, not with anything shocking or new, but around the margins of your established desires to roll something into a scene or you know, one of your play nights that you didn't ask for but that he can safely assume you might be up for and then, of course, pull back if that's not something that you're going to enjoy, that you can step out of rolls for a second in the scene but anyway have fun suspend your disbelief about this teacher student role and enjoy what you created here what you found what you've built for yourself with this guy it sounds in every respect absolutely totally awesome and you should be thanking the universe for bringing you two
1: together hi dan i'm a 34 year old gay married man my husband and i have been together for nine years and married for five our relationship has been long distance for its entirety. He's in the military and has been deployed five times in the last decade for six to nine months each. We're currently halfway through yet another deployment and the coronavirus lockdown has added additional isolation and stress while I'm at home and he's in the Middle East. For the first time, I've began to wonder, have I finally had enough of only having a part-time husband? In the last year, we've only spent about 100 nights together in the same bed in the same country. I love him and he loves me, but I'm plagued by the feeling that love just isn't enough anymore. I want a proper full-time marriage where we spend most nights together. It doesn't have to be all of them, but 30 to 50% of each year just isn't okay. He's never going to leave the military. He was in before we met, and it's a lifelong commitment for him. But after all this time, I'm lonely. We have a monogamish relationship, so this isn't about sexual connection with other men. We have that if we choose. The problem is simply this. Some days I think I deserve more. My advice to others in this situation would be simple. There are two options. Accept that I have a part-time husband and all of the loneliness and some benefits that come with that. Or leave and find somebody with whom I can be in a normal, full-time relationship. I don't want to do the latter, but the former I only seem to be able to do for short periods before I get fed up again. In essence, the military is the third person in our relationship, and she's a demanding bitch that often has to come before me. When we're physically together, it's amazing. So because there's nothing I can't ask on the Savage Love cast, how do we work through this? Has the bad that comes with the marriage finally overridden the goods? Is this never-ending quarantine creating a problem or just exposing one that was always there? Can I accept something that most other couples would find unacceptable?
2: So you don't want to be the part-time husband anymore. You don't want to have a part-time husband anymore. But you also don't want to leave your husband, which puts you where you are now, with your husband alone temporarily while he's deployed and miserable. Sounds to me like maybe you're fed up. Sounds to me like maybe the misery of separation isn't worth whatever joy and pleasure you have with him when you're together, particularly right now when you're not able to see anybody else, when he's away, you're not able to act on the monogamous aspect of your relationship and find somebody to be with you that night or for a few nights while your husband is deployed to make his absence more bearable. And so, yeah, this lockdown, this quarantine has made it harder for you. And that was the accommodation that you two made, the monogamishimi. That was the accommodation that made the strain on your relationship that his career in the military places there bearable. And now without that accommodation, without being able to act on the monogamishimi, you're more miserable, more acutely miserable than you typically were. And I just want to highlight this for casual listeners, for people whose problem this isn't. We hear all the time about a relationship that's destroyed by non-monogamy. Somebody opens a relationship, a couple has a three-way. If it leads to disaster, we hear about it because the relationship ends. We are much less likely to hear about those relationships, those marriages that are saved by non-monogamy. This is an example of a marriage that has been made possible, that has been saved by the monogamish allowance that has made it possible for this guy, for this caller to stay married to this man and stay sane. And one of the problems right now for you, caller, is that has been taken off the table. The thing that made it possible, the thing that saved your marriage is probably the monogamish accommodation, the allowance to sleep with other people. And that's off the table right now. But brother listeners, you know, just wanted to highlight this We hear about the relationships that non-monogamy destroys and the marriages that non-monogamies are some random three-way destroys we rarely hear about the relationships that non-monogamy and the marriages that non-monogamy saves. This is something I think you should discuss with your husband. You know, there are a lot of studies out there that show that deployments place strain on marriages. Divorce rates for military couples with one person in the military or both people in the military are very high. And military couples are likelier to divorce than civilian couples. Sounds to me like that may be where you're headed, particularly if you know you're 10 years into this marriage into this relationship and he was in the military before you met and intends to remain in the military indefinitely. It will always be thus. It will always be like, this is what you signed up for. This was 10 years ago, the price of admission you were willing to pay to be with this guy. And just reading the tone in the room (laughs) or the tone of your voice, it seems like that's not a price of admission that you can see yourself paying for another decade. All that said, I wouldn't make a move. Right now. This is an extraordinary circumstance. The coronavirus, the pandemic, it will pass in at the outside a couple of years. I hate to even contemplate it. I hate to say these things a couple of years, maybe a little bit longer. We will have a vaccine. We will come through on the other side of this and the accommodation that made it possible for you to bear being married to the man that you love and that you married will return. You will be able to act on the monogamous me again on the monogamous aspect of your relationship. And maybe that patch makes it possible for you to stay in this marriage, which is what you say that you want to do. You want to stay married, but he's not going to leave the military. You've also said somebody loses here. It's been you for the last decade. You say that he was in the military before you met. You've been the other 15 years. If he's been in the military for longer than 10 years, maybe 15 years, maybe he's going to end his career another five years and you just have to grit your teeth and power through this. And I'll end with this and I, and I hope he's done this. And I think that he must've, because you would have said something if he hadn't done this, if he hadn't honored your sacrifice, as they say, if he didn't tell you, if he didn't communicate to you how appreciative he is of you being his husband, being married to him and allowing him to, continue on with this career in the military that means so much to him, that your forbearance has allowed him to have both the man he wants in his life and the career that he wants and values. And I hope you feel appreciated. You don't sound like you feel very appreciated right now. Get on the phone with your husband, express your frustration, and I hope that he knows enough, has a high enough emotional IQ to shower you with the appreciation that you clearly deserve and seem to desperately need right now.
4: Hi, Dan. I live in the rural Midwest. I'm an asexual female, and I uh, live in a really nice apartment complex, and this morning I came out, and there was a truck parked across from me, and it had an LGBT sticker, and I thought, oh, cool. So I went up to it, and then I saw that it was LGBT, and the L was for liberty, the G was for guns, the B was for beer, and the T was for Trump. And it just really upset me because I'm seeing more of these kinds of things in my community. And I just want to know, am I overreacting? I kind of want to go to the building manager and be like, you know, I'm part of this community. I don't think it's fair for people to be making fun of gay people, but it is a bumper sticker. So maybe I'm overreacting. I don't know. It just shook me up. But... Maybe I should just laugh it off or something. I don't know. I, I just like to know, what do you think? You think I should say something? Or you think I should let it go?
2: You want to make that asshole's day? The person who owns that truck? The person who put that bumper sticker on that truck? Go complain to building management about how you felt so attacked. Go be the snowflake that actually the right-wingers are. Oh, I have to wear a mask in the store. I can't take it. Oh, I can't get my tips frosted. Boo-hoo-hoo. They're the snowflakes. We're not. We are made of tougher stuff. We couldn't exist as queers on this planet if we weren't made of tougher stuff than they are. So you saw this bumper sticker, LGBT. We've seen this for years. It used to be Liberty Guns Beer and Trucks, Liberty Gun Beer and Tits, Liberty Guns Beer and Texas. And at least two of those four things I'm down. I'm kind of down with Texas, too, a little bit. Austin's nice. Houston had a lesbian mayor. Uh, But, you know, Liberty, But we live here, and we have the liberty to be gay here, and thank God, and who doesn't like beer? They serve beer in gay bars and trucks. I've seen homos drive them to gay bars where then they drink beer, and they feel at liberty to suck each other's dicks. So not everything on that bumper sticker is ipso facto (laughs) objectionable to queer people but all of that but you know adding Trump to it and Trump is such a rapidly anti-LGBT uh, president and has enacted all sorts of anti-LGBT uh, policies including you know giving Doctors and nurses, the right to refuse care to trans patients, kicking trans people out of the military, uh, all sorts of anti-gay. Anyway, yeah, adding Trump to that makes it specifically anti-gay. And you're right to see that as an attack on you as a member of the queer community. But you don't want to play along. You don't want to take the bait. This is somebody with their truck, with their little fucking bumper sticker, trying to, and I'm making fun of them, not you, trying to troll you. Don't. Feed the trolls. Don't make this asshole's day. Have a beer and forget it. Just shrug it off. Don't make this asshole's day by letting him think, even if it's true, that his bumper sticker managed to ruin yours.
5: Hey, Dan. I dealt with severe, severe depression all my life, literally life threatening. A couple years ago, I finally got on the right medication after experimenting with my doctor, and it saved my life. But it completely tanked my sex drive, gave me E D, delayed my orgasms to the point where orgasms became a myth. It was horrible. And I told my doctor, look, it's okay, it's a good trade-off. But my doctor, who was amazing and very sex positive, she uh eventually wore me down with her insistence that I try Viagra. Again, I never I, I just thought, well, you know, goodbye, sex. She finally wore me down. I tried it, and I am so, so, so glad I did. Sex is always, sex my entire life was a huge part of me, a huge part of my life, and it was really important for my well-being. So the Viagra, I know results may vary, but the Viagra has been a wonder drug for me, and I feel like a complete person for the first time. Maybe since I was a kid, because before I had a wonderful sex life and crippling depression or no depression, no sex life. Yeah. Better living through chemistry.
2: I'm glad you had a sex positive doctor who wanted to work with you on this and who valued and prioritized your sex life at a moment when you weren't valuing and prioritizing your sex life and you sound grateful. Sounds like you're going to be eternally grateful to your doctor for... Being sex positive and uh, assertive at that moment. It's interesting that Viagra is helping you in this way. I mean, we've talked a lot about Viagra on the show. We've talked a lot about female Viagra, which doesn't exist. A pill to, you know, induce horniness. That's what they're trying to do with, you know, female Viagra. It's a pill that will treat low desire or low libido in women and up their desire. And they haven't found that pill yet. And they call it the female Viagra, the goal, holy grail, female Viagra. And that really is inaccurate because Viagra typically doesn't induce desire. It aids someone who's already horny when it comes to performance. Makes it possible for the dude to get the erection that he wished he had at that moment because he's super horny and wants to have sex. Sounds like, though, what you've done is kind of the flip. You're using Viagra. It helps you get an erection. You begin having sex and then you get horny, which is often something that's associated with female sexuality. Men get horny and want to have sex. And I'm about to make generalizations about 3.5 billion people and 3.5 billion people. There'll be hundreds of millions of exceptions. The exceptions are probably listening to the show or many of them, but the saw is the old saw: is men get horny and want to have sex. And many women begin to have sex and get horny. Sounds to me like the Viagra helps you begin to have sex. And then the horniness kicks in for you. It's a good tip for other men out there who are on antidepressants that they need that have saved their lives, but have tanked their libidos, and harmed their sex lives. Give Viagra a try, get that erection, and then see if you weren't inspired to do something with it.
6: Hi, Dan. So, my boyfriend and I are in a really strong, loving, open relationship. We met on seeking arrangements, and for the first six months, it was pretty casual, arrangement-y, but it has grown much more since then, and we've been dating for almost two years. A couple months ago, I discovered that after his divorce, he got a sex doll, And she is still lovingly hidden and kept away in his basement. And when I found this out, I, of course, immediately needed to see her and meet her. Um, And once I did that, uh, he confided that he only really used her twice. She's really awkward and bendy and they weigh a lot. Like, it's like you're lugging around a dead body. And so after kind of using her twice, he kind of got annoyed and didn't really bring her out ever again. Um, And so now he just has her. And so our question to you is, how do you ethically get rid of a sex doll in an environmentally friendly way? Um you can't sell her. I mean you could I guess, but she's been used, so who would buy a used sex doll? You can't throw her away. That's terrible for the environment. All that silicone just sitting in the dump. So if you have any recommendations on how to get rid of her, we would really greatly appreciate it.
2: I'm flabbergasted that you listen to this show and yet you are slut shaming this sex doll. You're asserting that no one could possibly be interested in taking the sex doll off your hands because she's been used twice. I assure you, there are men out there, probably some women out there too, who would be happy to take that sex doll off your and your boyfriend's hands and out of your boyfriend's basement. Unlike a real woman's vagina, a sex doll's vagina is not self-cleaning, but that doesn't mean it can't be cleaned. That thing can be power washed. And those things, those, you know, full-size sex dolls, they're fucking expensive. There are lots of people out there, I promise you, who wish they could afford to buy one, but can't. They're just prohibitively expensive. Finding you guys on Craigslist or wherever it is that people can sell kinky shit Selling it, you know, a fourth of the cost or a tenth of the cost, this sex doll, taking it off your hands, taking it out of your boyfriend's basement, keeping it out of a landfill. I promise you, someone will step forward. Don't project your own disgust onto everybody else in the world who might be interested in sex dolls. You might not be interested in using one that has been used by someone else, not even your boyfriend. But I promise you, there are lots of guys out there who would have zero hangups about using your boyfriend's lovingly pre-used, pre-owned sex doll. Keep it out of
7: the landfill. Sell it. Hello, Dan. Here's my question. Do our partners have a say in who we keep as friends? Here's the background. I'm an early 30s queer male in an ethnically non-monogamous marriage with an early 30s bisexual woman. Throughout the course of my wife and I's relationship for five years, we've discovered non-monogamy together and grew into polyamory which we have been doing with varying degrees of success for about five years. We are also sex-positive in general and both host and attend sex parties. We have no rules about our interactions with others other than strict use of condoms and complete honesty. Over the past year, the polyamorous portion of my life has primarily involved one woman other than my wife. We can call her Amanda. I was in a relationship with an Amanda, Amanda for five months last year. Sexually, intellectually, and romantically, this was one of the most fulfilling and exciting relationships I've ever been in. I met her and her husband together at a sex party. Um, however, our five mo- five-month relationship came to a short end when I was dishonest with my wife about one of our post-date hookups. It wasn't the details of the hookup that necessarily caused the problem, but the fact that I was dishonest about it. Regardless, I chose to end my relationship with Amanda in order to save my relationship with my wife. After that, I cut off communication with Amanda for eight months. I thought I would never speak to or see her ever again. I think it was the right sacrifice, but it was still a very difficult one because I did love her very much and was very much still in the passionate part of the relationship. The current situation, about a month and a half ago, my wife, unprompted, initiated contact with Amanda. Since then, this has gotten us to the point where we are now texting regularly and have even hung out a few times before the quarantine. We've decided that, for now, it's best for us to maintain platonic friendship, even though we both know we want more. The problem, though, is that Amanda's husband has very conflicting and sometimes volatile reactions to polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, and also just me in general. He has always been uncomfortable with her love for me. After our breakup, he was resentful that he had to console his wife over the loss of another man, despite the fact that me and him had a good relationship. We had foursomes and threesomes together. I invited him to parties. We weren't going to become besties, but we got along and had a lot in common. Now she doesn't want to tell him that we're friends because she thinks it will end her marriage. Anyway, Amanda and I want to text each other, talk on the phone, play games, see each other. Her husband is uncomfortable with any of these things, let alone all of them. Despite this, we have been texting, talking on the phone, playing games together, and before the quarantine, we were hanging out. Everyone involved would prefer that Amanda and I do not do things behind her husband's back. That being said, we are mostly willing to do those things. Do you think that Amanda and I should keep doing what we're doing? What can we do to improve the situation if it can be improved?
2: Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Diana Adams is a lawyer and mediator for LGBTQ and polyamorous families with a law firm based in New York City and a nonprofit for low-income families called Chosen Family Law Center. Hey, Diana, how are you? It's been so long. It's great to have you back.
8: I'm glad to be back on again. I'm doing as well as can be expected given the horror in the whole world. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's been particular horror for poly people. One of the my sad obligations a few weeks ago when the lockdowns began more than a month and a half ago was to cancel polyamory. Unless you were living with all of your partners, you kind of had to Put those relationships on hold, at least the physical side of them. You could you could maintain a, an emotional connection. You could talk to each other, but you couldn't meet up. So this has been a really trying time. We've been getting more questions than ever from poly folks. I think in part because this is a more trying time in some ways, relationship in the, you know in the relationships here for poly people than for monogamous people, and maybe even for single people.
8: I think it is a really hard time for poly people. Poly relationships are often really based on freedom and often have a complicated network of several partners Uh, for each person, perhaps, uh, different kinds of structures. Sometimes there's a hierarchical structure of of a nesting partner, a primary partner. And then now we're having to make these really hard, blunt choices of which people you're going to live with for the next month or so and not see all of the others. And so people are getting forced into situations in which they're um, a nuclear family in a de facto kind of way because they feel like they it's not responsible to see their other partners. Um, and then maybe a nesting or primary partner is getting more privilege in that situation. And a, a person who's not that kind of nesting partner might be feeling shut out or alone or mm-hmm. isolated. And people are, are forced into situations in which they are suddenly shacking up with somebody that they haven't been with for that long because it's what makes sense. People are in a, in desperate situations. People are getting evicted. And then maybe you have your ex moving in or the person you've only been dating for a month is moving in because they have no place else to go. So I think it's particularly complicated when you're trying to, man- trying to manage more than one relationship mm-hmm. uh, in those kinds of situations in which it's either you're in or you're out that has been really hard for people.
2: I, I've been shocked by, you know, there's that hierarchical structure that you talk about where there's the primary partner, the nesting partner, um, and then you have secondary partners. And I'm... Often surprised by the numbers of secondary partners who kind of suspend their disbelief about that, who, you know, just try not to think about the fact that they're not the first priority. There's, you know, an emotional connection, maybe there's there are obligations that are met, but they they haven't had to or they've been able to suspend their disbelief about it. But this has made it impossible for a lot of people who are the secondary partner to continue to suspend their disbelief. And they're not enjoying. Feeling like the lesser priority, even though they understood that's kind of what they were if they entered into a hierarchical polyamorous relationship where they were not the primary.
8: This situation is absolutely putting secondary partnerships in stark relief. And I had a similar situation myself 15 years ago. um, I was in three relationships with people who were married and I was a secondary in all of them. All three felt very strong and committed and I had plenty of attention and my needs met in lots of different ways until I got a horrific flu and needed someone to take me to the hospital. And all three of my partners said, my spouse says I can't go because they don't want me to get sick. So, Many, many people are in that exact situation right now of not actually having somebody to take care of them or to be with in this incredibly trying time because people are calling rank. People are literally calling rank and saying, okay, well, I'm the nesting partner, I'm the primary partner, or I'm your co-parent, and we just cannot risk getting sick right now. And that may be making sense for some of those families to say, we, we can't be, we can't have Everyone coming into our household, and we need to be setting limits on who we're seeing in person. I think that may make sense um, in terms of public health, but it is definitely putting um, the hierarchy of those relationships into a very harsh perspective.
2: All right, let's move on to this question, which really doesn't, I, I think, touch too much on the pandemic. Uh, you know, the, the, the caller opens by saying, Do our partners have a say in who we keep as friends? But he doesn't mean his partner, because his partner approves of his relationship with this woman that she'd previously asked him to cut off all contact with. She reestablished contact. His wife reestablished contact with Amanda, as he calls her. And it's all good with his wife. The person who isn't okay with them being friends is Amanda's husband, who they're keeping in the dark. This person claims they're practicing ethical non-monogamy. What do you say, Diana Adams?
8: I was really concerned by the framing of this question, whether partners have a say in who we keep as friends, because that framing is really a cop-out here. The question is really, is it okay to sneak around behind a spouse's back connecting with a former partner you still have feelings for? Um, I think it's really important if we're going to be ethical with our non-monogamy that we're honest with ourselves about what we're really doing here and not blaming other people for having reasonable needs and expectations. I think it's really important that everyone be honest, particularly given that the caller talks about how dishonesty almost ruined his own marriage in terms of his connection with Amanda and Mm -hmm. um, not being honest with his wife about what had happened. Um, I think demonstrating more tolerance for dishonesty could also harm Amanda's marriage as well and may not sit well with his wife. It was unclear to me if he's being fully honest with his wife right now about just how much he's connecting with Amanda. And I think he really needs to be Um, I think particularly right now, we all need to be gentle with each other. And this really does seem like it's an emotional affair um, in which they're being dishonest with a spouse. And that can be extra harmful during this really vulnerable time.
2: He seems to think it's a kind of get out of the jail you and I are stuffing him into right now. Free card that he and his wife met Amanda and her husband at a sex party. But lots of people who are in open relationships, couples who will go to sex parties have rules, about emotional attachments to others, and those aren't allowed, and that is clearly either a blanket rule in Amanda's relationship with her husband, or it is a specific rule about this dude, where the husband has you know thrown down that veto that can seem unfair, that can seem to somebody outside the relationship arbitrary, but often it's that kind of power and primacy, getting back to that word, that makes it possible for a couple to be in an open relationship in the first place. Yeah, this just doesn't sit well with me. This the, the the caller, I I I was kind of getting mad at this caller on behalf of poly people everywhere because it's this kind of bullshit. You know, people who are in monogamous relationships will play these kinds of games too. So it's not like this game is this kind of bullshit game is unique to poly people, but it seems to bring disproportionate discredit onto poly people when poly people engage in this kind of
8: I agree. And and I think it's worth acknowledging here that sneaking around is its own thrill. And here Mm -hmm. they're sneaking around. And particularly in a time like a pandemic, when we're all incredibly stressed out and overwhelmed, this can be a way of seeking out excitement and fun and thrills. It's something that's forbidden. Uh, We can't, but we must. We have to keep sending sexy pictures or we have to keep chatting or we have to keep uh, sending messages back and forth. Um, That can be something that can be really comforting right now. But that can be also harming other people. So we need to be really honest about what we're doing here and be honest with himself first um, about the fact that he's sneaking around and figure out why is he doing that and see if, if it's because he wants to seek out excitement and fun uh, because that's comforting, finding a way to do that that is not going to harm other people um, is really essential here.
2: And it seems to me that the excitement and fun is his and Amanda is also getting some excitement and fun out of this, but the risk is all on Amanda. Because if Amanda's husband finds out, it's going to blow up Amanda's marriage and threaten, you know, where it is that Amanda gets to live right now. It's not going to blow up the caller's marriage. So, yeah, excitement and fun. Totally get it. I totally understand the thrill of doing something you're not supposed to do, transgressing and being naughty. But for God's sake, the caller claims to care about this woman and is putting her marriage at at risk in a time where that could be hugely consequential. If she suddenly has to move out or her husband moves out and she's suddenly alone.
8: Right. We're all really emotionally activated right now. We're all going through this terrible time and we really need to make sure that people are, are safe and really cared for by not disrupting their living situations for one thing. um, And their relationships, I think as you said, the risk is really high here um, for dishonesty. And I think it seems like the caller is uh, judging Uh, Amanda's husband for this veto. But I think we need to accept that being polyamorous, being ethically non-monogamous doesn't mean that there are no rules or agreements out there. I think it means instead that we get to decide what those rules and agreements are. And maybe he doesn't have veto power in his marriage. Maybe he wouldn't accept that. Maybe he disagrees with that. Maybe he's more of a relationship anarchist. That's fine for him. But if that's the way that Amanda's relationship is structured, then that's something that I think he should respect if he wants to respect her.
2: Can we keep you around for one more call? Absolutely.
9: Hi, Dan. My question is basically, how do I get through a breakup when I still love the person I broke up with and I'm literally stuck with them and their other partner? So last year, I moved in with my partner, Elle, and their partner. We hadn't been dating super long, but it seemed like a good idea because the three of us get along really well and I was spending a couple nights at their place every week anyway, But after I moved in, things kind of went downhill. Elle is pretty avoidant and has intimacy issues that didn't come up until I moved in. So they started avoiding me and constantly canceling our plans and just kind of blowing me off. And whenever I tried to figure out or address what was going on, they just always had more excuses. And even though in the moment they would agree to a solution, they would never follow through. And meanwhile, the list of things that I could or couldn't do was continually getting longer. I constantly felt like I was walking on eggshells. And it got to the point where I didn't want to make plans with my friends in case that might be the one time that they actually wanted to hang out with me. Eventually, I realized they were not gonna change their behavior and I was bending over backwards trying to work things out while she was doing nothing on her end, so I broke up with her. But I am still locked into a lease. I can't afford to break the lease and subletting is not an option. I thought it would be okay because it really was an amicable breakup and the three of us are all still friends, supposedly. And I thought like, oh, if I start, you know, dating again and and focus on new friendships and stuff like that, it would help me to get over the whole situation. But now we're quarantined together and I can't help but feel incredibly jealous of the intimacy between Elle and her partner. And I'm mad that we couldn't have that. I mean, I'm just jealous that they even have each other because right now I have no one. And now that we're all stuck at home together, um, Elle has been even more withdrawn and avoidant and will sometimes go days without speaking to me. So I'm just like in a really shitty situation of being stuck with someone who I care for deeply, who acts very uh, hot and cold towards me. So just as a
2: general rule, rule of poly thumb, how soon is too soon to move in with a new partner and your new partner's partner?
8: I definitely would say that moving in with an existing relationship structure is something that I would suggest people really wait and take some real time with. Um, I don't think there's any particular benchmark, but For example, in the world of family mediation and law, we often talk about something like six months before you introduce a new partner to your child with Mm -hmm. the consent of your co-parent, for example. Um, You want to make sure you've been together long enough to have had some solid fights, to recover from the fights. You're over the initial new relationship energy thrill of having sex all the time and being so uh, enamored of each other that you think the other person is flawless. It seems like in this situation, the caller may have moved in really quickly. I, I want to acknowledge that there's privilege there. Maybe people, people sometimes are in financial duress situations. They make choices that they might not have made. I think lots of people in New York City, for example, or San Francisco have shacked up with somebody a little bit too soon because they you know, can't afford the rent. Mm-hmm. Um, but those situations really put us in emotional peril when we move in really quickly, and it seems like that happened with the caller.
2: Yeah, People need to bear in mind this is a high degree of difficulty event to, to move in with an established couple as a new partner even if you've been seeing your new partner past the point where it's so new anymore even if it's been six months or a year integrating yourself into someone else's relationship into an into this going concern is in it's it's not easy but you know what i detect here she moved in with her you know new poly girlfriend moved in very quickly and Shortly after the move in, she notices her girlfriend is avoidant and withdrawn. And that to me, you know, I don't want to be cruel to the caller who's in a, t- a terrible situation now that she's broken up with her partner and is basically alone living with this couple. It sounds to me like the girlfriend had sudden buyer's remorse about the relationship that they hadn't been dating long enough for the girl that she moved in with to figure out whether or not this was someone she wanted to be in a long-term commitment with. And they rushed it. They rushed it because of the NRE, which is just a dangerous time to move in together.
8: I I agree. I think it's important to kind of wait um, maybe at least that six-month kind of mark, nine-month mark uh, before making a, a drastic move like moving in together. It's also particularly difficult To move in to somebody else's turf. And that's enough uh, of a concern in a two person relationship. If you move in with your boyfriend and it's his apartment for the past 10 years, he may not be open to you making interior decorating suggestions. It's his apartment, perhaps. In this situation, there's a couple who lives there. And so that may be a power imbalance in which the other other partner may have more clout and standing in the household. It may feel like this is a couple's house and their girlfriend lives there, too. That's at least a risk, particularly with not knowing uh, these people so well. So I think now we've ended up in a, a bad situation in which the caller seems to be in a lease with them. So having some level of commitment, as well as then having this quarantine through uh, shelter in place in a pandemic. So they can't really leave at this point, perhaps. Um, And and that puts them in a situation of really being stuck in a hard place here.
2: And they're trying to be friends and and, and they really do have to make an effort to be friends. Otherwise, the living situation is going to be unbearable for all. You know, the, the, the caller describes the girlfriend as kind of avoidant, probably around conflict. It seems to me that now is a time for all three of them to be avoidant around conflict. And to make the best of this situation and not confront issues or problems uh, directly or head on or attempt to resolve them, but instead to constantly, you know, if there's any sort of conflict, to be de escalating instead of necessarily trying to resolve because you will be moving out as soon as you possibly can. As soon as this lease is over, you will be moving out. And that's going to be in your own. Best interests as a as a single person. It'll also be in the best interest of whatever friendship or relationship you want to salvage with this couple going forward, if any.
8: I agree, and I think in terms of figuring out how to relate to each other in this time period when they can't leave the same household, it's possible to maybe negotiate a uh, a, a way to connect that's at a level that they're both comfortable with. Sometimes people who are avoidant like L. Um, can be overwhelmed by the idea that the other person has more needs than they really can accommodate, than they really can give. Um, They may have an unconscious feeling that if they spend time with you at all, you'll want more, so they push you away. This is a really common push-pull dynamic that happens in relationships. And I think it's possible to instead really clearly communicate some mutual expectations with something that is a bit more mutual, platonic, and minimal, such as how about once a week we have a group hangout night and on Saturday we all watch a movie, play a board game, do a uh, Zoom event, uh, make dinner together, something like that. And that might feel like a way that you can break the tension by having some level of connection to be uh, cordial with each other in your space without having that be a sense that that might just bleed into spending time together all the time. Um, so that could be one way to to manage that.
2: And finally, what does she do with those feelings of jealousy? You know, people talk – if you – Tell people that you're poly or you have an open relationship. Invariably what you know, the person who's monogamous will say is, don't you feel jealous? And My answer is always, yeah, sometimes don't you feel jealous? It's nothing about monogamy that immunizes you against jealousy. But she's jealous right. right now because they still have each other and she feels like she has no one. How does she process that particular brand of jealousy in this circumstance?
8: I think that that feeling of loss um, and isolation is particularly painful. Many of us are feeling isolated um, and missing touch, missing emotional connection, missing sex, and that's hard enough. If you're living alone in an apartment, it might be even worse to be in an apartment with your cold ex and their other partner, seeing that they are snuggling, seeing that they're connecting, but you're not part of that. That is objectively really hard. And I think in this situation. It could be really helpful for the caller to, number one, carve out a sanctuary in the apartment. Is there a space that can be hers? Is it just the bedroom that she's in? Is there an office that she can be in? And just make that her sanctuary, her space, where she can um, feel really juicy, make it as, as comfortable and as pleasant to be in as possible so that she doesn't have to be around that and then decide when she wants to be in the common space and if she doesn't want to see them settle on the couch see if she can find a way to retreat and take some space for herself that feels good and then secondarily i think she also really needs to just accept that Elle is not going to be there for her I have some concerns that the caller was bending over backwards before and may still be holding out a little bit of hope that there's going to be a connection there, Um, still kind of holding a candle for her ex. And I think her ex has has proven time and again that she's not going to be there for her. And particularly during this really stressful pandemic time, it does not seem like this person is going to be there for her as a friend or for any emotional support. And that's painful and that's really disappointing. But I think it's really important for the caller to figure out how to take care of herself and find a way to get her emotional needs met elsewhere, to really put, put this relationship out of her head to the extent that she can in terms of holding on to this emotional hope and try to move forward, see if there's other places she can place her emotional needs or desires for connection, for friendship, for sexuality, um, and, and really doing everything that she can to build that resilience in herself. And I think it's worth acknowledging that for many of us, our usual coping mechanisms aren't um, going to seem like enough because usually our goal is to make things great and not sucky. And during a pandemic, things are going to often be sucky. And this is one of those situations that's just really lousy. And so accepting that th- this is this is her share of what is really lousy in this and mm. doing whatever she can to just take care of herself to be really resilient to, um, you know, take care of her body, take care of her mind, take care of her heart, find her emotional needs met elsewhere, and try to take care of herself until the day when she can finally get off that lease and get out into some place uh, that is another safe place to go to.
2: Diana Adams is a lawyer and mediator for LGBTQ and poly families, law firm based in New York City, and a nonprofit called Chosen Family Law Center. Diana, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was great to to talk to you and reconnect. Thank you.
8: Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it. Hi, Dan.
10: I have a low-stakes question for you. I am in my mid-20s, and I'm about to break up with my boyfriend. I wish things had worked out. Um, he's a really sweet guy, and we've only been together for a few months. But our jobs are bringing us apart, and I don't want to do long-distance. So my question is about nudes. Um, I've always asked previous partners to delete them, knowing that they might not and tell me that they did, but also trusting that so far I've dated fundamentally decent guys. This guy is so sweet and respectful, and I'm hoping that since we're breaking up for structural reasons, we can stick the landing with a little time and stay friends. All the nudes he has are screenshots from Snapchat, so I'm comfortable that I know exactly what he has, none with my face or anything like that. Um, So should I ask him to delete the nudes, again, knowing that he might not do it, even if I ask and just tell me that he did? Or should I let it go and know that even if the unlikely worst happens with me and him, they're fairly anonymous and unincriminating?
2: You want to know whether you should ask him to delete the nudes, your nudes, or let it go. And it's not an either or. That's a false choice. What you need to do, because it's what you want to do, is ask him to delete your nudes and then let it go. Because you will never know for sure whether he honored your request and you don't want to obsess about it. Hopefully he's a good and decent guy who will delete the nudes at your request. I think that's something that an ex has a right to ask us. But there's a limit to... Your control in that situation for you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt for you to verify really ever whether your ex deleted those nudes. Thankfully, the nudes are non-identifying. They don't have your face in them. So if he's an asshole when you break up with him, he's less likely to be able to weaponize them and use them as revenge porn or you know, punish you with them. And even if his phone were to get hacked and that's how your nudes, if he still possesses them, got out there, you won't be harmed by them being released into the wilds of the internet. But yeah, ask, ask. It's clearly what you want to do. Ask, then let it go. Not ask or let it go.
11: Hi, Dan. Bye, female calling from the Southwest. I'm having a problem with my boyfriend of over two years who's developed a preference for jerking off rather than having sex with me. He was laid off as a result of the pandemic and I'm working from home now. We used to have sex a lot, but lately when I get up for my morning conference call, he'll jerk off. Sometimes when I'm home working, he'll get up in the middle of the day and go into the bedroom and jerk off. And I wouldn't care otherwise, but I'm horny. And we only have sex like twice a week. This morning, he even asked me to leave the bedroom so he could jerk off. I thought he was kidding at first, but he was dead serious. When I brought it up, he compared it to being hungry and not wanting to cook a big meal, rather just microwave a burrito. He also said that he didn't want to interrupt my work. And I told him I wanted to have work interrupted if it's to get laid. He also said he's having negative self-body image lately because he's gained a little bit of weight. I told him, I feel like I'm being left out when he jerks off, when I'm right here and want to get laid, to which he responded, well, you are getting left out. I don't know if he's always done this since before the pandemic, we had kind of opposite work schedules, but we did have a lot more sex even then. Is he just not into me anymore? Should I be as upset as I am?
2: If he was fucking you on the regular still and rubbing one out occasionally and sometimes wanting to be alone to masturbate because masturbating scratches a different itch or he had a higher libido than you did, this wouldn't be a problem. But it is a problem in this context where he is clearly communicating to you that he would rather be alone and masturbate than connect with you sexually. Now, sex requires a lot more – Effort, and sometimes people just want to retreat inside themselves, into their fantasies or whatever else, and masturbate, and they want to relieve themselves. And often men want to relieve themselves. The pressure builds up, and they just want to blow that load, so they can think about something else for ninety minutes. You know, the time it takes for their balls to fill back up. But that's not what's going on here. Your partner is retreating from you, not just to masturbate occasionally, but sounds like he's retreating from you sexually entirely. And neglecting you and making you feel bad about yourself, bad about the relationship, making you feel undesirable. You know, I've had to tell people who discovered their partners were masturbating and were all upset about it. You know, I've gotten those people on the phone sometimes and asked them are you still having sex with your partner? And they would tell me they were having just as much sex as they ever did. They were just shocked to learn their partner was also masturbating. Well, in that relationship that I've just described, the person who's shocked that their partner is masturbating and wants to regulate their partner's alone time in that way is the problem. Seems clear here that your boyfriend is the problem. Maybe he does just feel bad about his body right now and you need to meet him there and encourage him to feel better about his body, to get out and move more. If he is unemployed because of the pandemic and spending all of his time at home and is more sedentary than he used to be, maybe he had activity built into his day, just running around for work that that, that's been taken from him. And he's physically running down, getting a little depressed. Maybe he needs your encouragement to, to be more active, your active participatory encouragement, perhaps to be more active and make him feel more comfortable in his skin. And you could rebuild your connection that way. But I got to say, in all honesty, you know, you wonder whether this means your partner isn't attracted to you anymore. That's a possibility. And what he's telling you by asking you to leave the room so he can masturbate points in that direction. And if he's not being proactive in any way about sustaining or covering your sexual connection, your shared sexual connection, that is a problem. That is. Doesn't bode well for the long-term prospects here. You need to make sure he knows it's a problem. Back off. Give him a little bit of space. Maybe he's depressed about (laughs) the whole fucking world being on fire and this is the most he can do er erotically right now. But you need to lay down a marker and let him know that the relationship will not survive if you two disconnect sexually and he's just alone in a room masturbating – a room that he doesn't want you in, even to provide him with a little masturbatory assist, even if you don't asking for the effort that, that, that sex entails, the physical effort or, you know, the having to you know center the other person's feelings, needs, pleasure as well as your own. If he doesn't have that in him right now, he needs to know that he's going to have to find that again or you're going to be out of there.
12: Hi, Dan. I live in a major metropolitan area. And for the last two years, my partner and I have been part of an organized swinging community. We've had some wonderful experiences. We've really explored our sexualities and we've met some awesome people. Because we live in a state with a very large city, we correspondingly have a high number of COVID cases and deaths. So the social distancing restrictions have been pretty strict. The swinger group is eager to comply with local laws. So as soon as lockdown was enacted, the swinger parties came to a halt, as they should. But now some states adjacent to us are starting to ease restrictions, in my opinion, prematurely. And the party organizer has started making plans for these parties this summer across state lines. I am furious about this. I think this is reckless and irresponsible, but I've seen so many people say that they're definitely going... Normally, I would want to live and let live, but I think it's a different calculation when people's lives are on the line. I can't see how it's safe to commit to something in July when we have no idea what the world is going to look like in a couple months. We don't know if we will see a decline in cases and hospitalizations, whether we will have accessible, reliable testing or even if it will be proven by then that having COVID antibodies means that you can't get reinfected or still pass the virus on to others. There are a few people in the swinger group who are are against these parties, and we've spoken out against them several times, but have had little to no support from the community. The vocal majority seems to be frustrated, exhausted, and ready to get out of quarantine and back to partying with their friends. And I relate to that on a base level, but I'm not willing to put anyone's life in danger so I can get some release. Many of these people also have younger kids, and I don't think they would be honest with their babysitters about where they were going for the weekend, which I think is super irresponsible and selfish, and it is making me crazy. It's been so frustrating to see so many people, many of whom I thought I liked, say that they're going to go. I've thought of your sorting hat philosophy many times, and this is really sorting some people into a group that I am never going to fuck, even if I have a safe opportunity to do so in the future. I can't believe how selfish everyone is being. I would love to get your take on this and whether you feel it is reckless and dangerous or that I'm being too cautious. I'm not getting a lot of backup in my community, so I would love to know what you think.
2: International Mr. Leather is this big annual event. It's a competition where somebody wins the International Mr. Leather Sash. People come from all over the world to compete. There's a huge leather market. People come from all over the world to fuck and hang out and get their kinks on. And unlike the pride parades and so many other events, rather than cancel it, it's supposed to be over Memorial Day weekend in May in Chicago, they've moved it to the fall. The odds that it's actually going to happen in the fall seem small probably would have been more responsible just to cancel. But on some level, I understand the impulse, not just the organizers who want IML to go on because it's important to the queer kink community. It's important to (laughs) the organizers, uh, but because people got to have something to look forward to because people do need a little bit of hope. And maybe I'm being too kind here, but it seems to me that this party that has been planned for July, it hasn't happened yet. You've encountered some pushback because people are upset and angry and, and desperate for to get back to normal, whatever their normal looked like. A lot of people, their normal looked like IML, a lot of straight swingers, their normal looked like these parties and they want them back so badly that I think there are people out there making plans right now that they're going to have to reassess later and it's been unpleasant having to confront people about this. I'm really glad that you have and some other people in your community have and that you've spoken up. Hopefully you've planted some seeds in people, some seeds of doubt and you've inspired some introspection because whatever they're planning right now in mid-May, July is two months away. We will know better in July whether it would be safe to go to that party or there's a safe way to have it. And I'm with you. Probably not, probably not going to be safe to have that party in July, just as it's probably not going to be safe or possible for IML to happen in Chicago in the fall. Most everything is going to be canceled for the year. Big events, mass gatherings are talking about having a baseball season with just players, no fans in the stands. And so, yeah, I wouldn't write all of these people off. Quite yet, the party hasn't happened. People are thinking about it, talking about it. It's one of the things that's great about kink or organized swinging is you get to make these plans well in advance, and they inspire you to to fantasize and look forward to. And it prompts a lot of people who are looking forward to this event where they're going to have sex with other people besides their partner to have sex with their partner in anticipation of going to that event. And maybe it's playing that role for some of the people in your swinging scene. It's given them hope. I think it's giving them false hopes. I think it's dangerous if the party happens. I think it's a bad idea if people, if it happens for people to go. And I would encourage you six, eight weeks from now, the party's going to happen for you to be clear to the people who are going that you will never fuck them again because you don't want to feel unsafe with your sex partners. And they now by definition are partners that you regard as unsafe, particularly if they're putting other people, their own children, their parents, if their parents are taking the kids for the weekend at risk and then build yourself a new community, build yourself a new community of responsible swingers that you can get together with now online video chat and then get together with in person. Once this
13: nightmare is over. Hi, Dan, Nancy and the tech savvy at risk youth. This is a very excited Sis had a reflexible man living in Melbourne, Australia. I'm also a Magnum subscriber and can't recommend that option more highly. So much Dan, so many guests, so much research, so much fun, and no commercials. Uh, and I've already listened to all the archives. Your podcast has meant so much to me, I can't even tell you. It has helped me to grow as a partner and person and assisted me in navigating relationships and sex and being way more satisfied. The Magnum version of the show drops in my feed here in Australia on Tuesdays and always makes me so happy when I receive it. But I'm sending you this message and I'm really excited right now. Uh, Not just because today is Friday quarantine afternoon sex day with my partner, but because I have just purchased tickets for the two of us to HumpFest. So while you're live and streaming from Seattle on Friday, the 15th of May, we will be here uh, watching in Australia on Saturday, the 16th of May at one in the afternoon. (laughs) Uh, That's going to be a very fun, naughty, and exciting afternoon indeed. Thanks again, Dan, to you and your whole team. Cheers.
2: We get calls like this every once in a while. I never play calls like this. I am too Catholic to accept a compliment. With any grace, I appreciate everyone out there who's a a listener, whether you're a Magnum subscriber or not, really appreciate your – support and engagement over all of these years that we've been doing this podcast. I particularly appreciate all the people who call in with their questions, who call in and make themselves vulnerable uh, and invite not just me to respond, but often listeners to respond. Our response calls are a very important part of the show and, and, and people's tweets. I've often said about the call and the show that sometimes the best advice uh, comes from the readers and the listeners, not from me. I'm only running this call because I do want to plug Hump. Hump is amazing. Hump is my little amateur porn film festival. Every film is five minutes or less. And and the whole idea about Hump was to bring back going to a movie theater and sitting next to strangers in the dark and watching pornography the way your grandparents did when Debbie Does Dallas was playing in theaters and Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door. And we can't do that right now. We can't bring people together in theaters. We thought we were going to have to cancel the 15th annual Hump tour, but we asked the filmmakers at the last minute if they would be comfortable with us for the first time ever putting Hump online and streaming it and so many of them said yes, that now we're able to bring Hump to people all over the world, including in Australia, where Hump has never been until now. Go to humpfilmfest.com for information about streaming times and dates, and please join us. And this is not about paying myself a compliment that Hump is so amazing. Hump is so amazing because of the performers, because of the filmmakers. The creativity and and passion and diversity on display is just amazing. Hump is Christmas, as far as I'm concerned, is my favorite time of the year and I'm so grateful to the filmmakers for allowing us to stream it and I want to accept this compliment that hump is amazing and people are excited to see it not on my own behalf but on behalf of all of the filmmakers go to humpfilmfest.com for information about when you can watch hump the comfort of your own home hopefully in the arms of your own lovers All right, before I get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Aubrey Hirsch tweets, legit almost had to unsubscribe from the Savage Lovecast when I heard Dan refer to vaginal secretions as clitty litter. If it has to be in my brain, it has to be in yours. She says to her followers, sorry, not sorry. All right. Now, I didn't refer to vaginal secretions as clitty litter. I was quoting someone who floated that after I highlighted the paucity of universally understood slang terms for vaginal secretions. This is a classic example of the use mentioned distinction. I didn't use or endorse CL. I mentioned it and objected to its use. And I promise you, Aubrey, and everyone else out there listening, this is the last time I'm ever going to mention it. Space Force Cadet Aaron tweets No, Dan Savage, gruel is not acceptable. No way, no how. Oh my God, people, you have to listen to all the words I use on the show. Most importantly, the words that come immediately before and immediately after a word or phrase you don't like. Because I said no to that horrifying portmanteau, also. Already on the show, you heard me mention not use mention that word rule. So you shouldn't be telling me it's unacceptable, Space Cadet Aaron. I know that. You should be praising me for rejecting it without having to be told. And finally, Lana Sequoia tweets. I was at the grocery store listening to the TSEG podcast, and the guy behind the meat counter asked what I was listening to, and I fumbled and said the Savage love cast because Dan Savage is my favorite, and the meat counter guy tells me he's a subscriber to the Magnum. Needless to say, I was cracking up inside because I almost got outed for my dirty little secret of listening to escort podcasts. Thanks, Lena. I wasn't familiar with the TSEG podcast hosted by Exotic Vivian, but I'm definitely going to check it out. And a big thank you to you, meat counter guy, for subscribing to the Magnum. All right. If you want me to potentially read your tweet about the show on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls.
12: This is a response to episode 707 around sex and porn addiction. You might consider that any behavior that you feel is disrupting your life or preventing you from living the life you want to live is certainly a problem. And if you can't work because of the behavior, or if you can't interact with your loved ones because of your behavior, or you just can't do whatever else you need or want to do in your life because of this specific behavior, it's probably requires attention. And whether you want to call that addiction is irrelevant And the fact that you're not living the life you want to live. Because of this behavior is the issue and probably requires outside help. So if you're watching porn every day, but can honestly tell yourself that you're living the life you want to live, you're a contributing citizen, you're connected to
14: your loved ones, you might not have a problem. Hi, Dan. I've been thinking about the woman who's married to the amputee. With her, I think you have to keep in mind that she and her husband are just folk. They're not going to open their marriage or call a sex worker. So essentially, unless she's going to deny her husband for the rest of his life, She has to figure out how to have sex with him. What I find works in marriage is that you have to agree to a day and a time and how often. In her case, that way her husband doesn't always have to ask for it. And then she needs to recognize that she's not turned on by his body. So you have to turn yourself on. Read some erotic fiction. There's great short stories online. Touch yourself with some lubricant beforehand. That way you're already turned on you can just go for it. I think Dan's advice of turning the lights off is good. You also want to use the power of visualization. Visualize your husband how he was when you fell in love with him. Or visualize Anderson Cooper, whatever does it for you. For a while, you might be faking it, but eventually you might come to get your groove back. Either way, you're doing this as an act of love for your husband, and your relationship's going to be better for this than if you just said goodbye to sex.
15: This is for the woman who was struggling with her bisexuality and was uh, had called herself overweight. Um, I can really relate to that feeling of struggling with your size, um, but I'm here from the future to tell you there is a lock for every key. I'm 36, and about four years ago, I went through a pretty slutty phase and put myself on Craigslist when that was a thing. Um, size 1820, and I really love uh, fit, muscular men, and I can tell you right now, the internet provides... I found many, many guys who were seeking a thick, fluffy lady like myself, and it really did wonders for my confidence. I learned a ton about boundaries and although I had fun with both situations, I really learned a difference between uh, genuine attraction and fetishizing, which is what really led me to find my uh, partner. Uh, We've been together now three years and I have never felt sexier than I do with him. So just know that you don't have to settle for scraps. You are not a consolation prize, but there are actually lots of people out there desiring you and your body type. Um, You just have to put yourself out there.
2: Before we leave it there, again, please join me, Nancy, and the tech Savvy at-risk youth for our first ever Savage Love live stream on Thursday, June 4th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. You can send your questions in advance to live stream at SavageLoveCast.com or send us your questions live during the event, and I will answer as many as I can in one fun-filled Zoom meeting. All proceeds from this show will be donated to Northwest Harvest, a nonprofit that distributes food to more than 370 food banks throughout Washington State. Go to SavageLoveCast.com slash Events to get those tickets now. And we're going to leave it there. 206 302 2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 302 2064. Even better, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You still have a few more chances to see the 15th annual Hump Film Festival online. We're live streaming my Dirty Little Film Fest at a variety of different times, including times that work for European viewers this weekend through June 12th. Get your tickets at humpfilmfest.com. And the producers of Pump have come up with a new film festival starting this Friday, May 22nd. Get your tickets to the Confinement Online Film Festival. You'll see an incredible range of short films, some funny, some wild, some poignant. All of them adventures in our current state of lockdown. You'll get to vote for your favorites and winners will get cash prizes. Go to thestranger.com slash cough. That's thestranger.com slash C-O-F-F to find out more and get your tickets. And finally, our, our hearts go out to Mark Marin, who was a guest on the show last week, and everyone else who's devastated by the loss of filmmaker and director Lynn Shelton. We are so very, very sorry. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Diana Adams on Twitter at Adams. ESQ. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Sebby at Risk Youth. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week from an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thank you for that.